what we're using now is a very interesting framework that's called um, equity-centered design. And basically where it starts is understanding yourself, like uh, my own stories. And then from there, you know, we get the students to start thinking about now how do you then go and work with community partners, starting from that premise of your own story and then trying to incite others to share their stories. And when you're doing that, is really building from this very, very strong foundation of trust. Hello, I'm Denise Withers, and you're listening to Forward, an interview series where today's leaders reveal how they use stories to make change and shape the future. If you need a new way to move forward towards your goals, then stay tuned, because I have just the story for you. My guest today is Paula Ardillas-Gamboa, an educator and public health champion. Paula teaches health promotion and social innovation at Simon Fraser University in Canada and is the co-founder of the Bridge for Health Co-op to promote well-being and health equity. She's also Chilean-Canadian, advocating for human rights in Chile. Much of her work focuses on the social determinants of mental health and, as you'll see and hear, story is one of her most powerful tools for change. So welcome, Paula. Thank you so much for having me, Denise. Well, I'm really excited to dive in because I know you've got a lot of uh, great stories to share with us. And you've been working for change through multiple channels for years. So it would be great if you could um, start out maybe by sharing an example of how you use story to shift you know, behavior, beliefs, and policy. And maybe you could start by telling us about how this all started when you gave a speech when you were accepting a public policy leadership award in 2012. Sure. That's actually a really interesting story because, you know, when, you, when you're up for a nomination, you really don't know what to expect. And I ended up sharing a very personal story. And, and it was very spontaneous and in the moment um, because I wanted people to understand why mental health mattered so much to me. But also I wanted them to understand why it was such a complex issue. And so I gave a speech and then the Canadian Mental Health Association of BC asked me to uh, write it out because they received really positive responses from people. And so then I wrote it and then I published it. Was, sorry, they published it on their page. And a lot of people have found me <laughs> through this story. So I think it did um, touch people. Again, I think because of the very personal nature. And could you tell us just really briefly what the, what the story was about? Yeah, so I started by letting people know about my own history. So I immigrated to Canada from Chile in the 70s during the time of the uh, Pinochet military uh, dictatorship. And so I wanted people to understand that my family and many other families that come to Canada, you know, in these awful circumstances don't necessarily choose to be here. But once we arrive in Canada, that people experience a lot of stress in, in that time period of adjusting to this new reality. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about what the barriers were, because the barriers that my parents had really did cause them to develop some mental health issues. And so I, I wanted the story to be about, you know, kind of broadening people's perspectives on how language barriers or, you know, lack of employment opportunities 
all of those things that are very familiar for newcomers, but maybe not for people that haven't had that lived experience. And then the other piece that I really wanted to communicate was that that there is also a societal investment that needs to happen in mental health. So there are many things that we can do that are more at the individual action level, but that also, you know, our governments and societies as a whole have a responsibility in terms of really investing in a public system that supports mental health. So that was the foundation for the story uh, for people to really understand what it means because often, you know, we read the research or we see a headline in the newspaper, but having that lived experience of seeing my parents go through these challenges, but also then seeing them be really strong and resilient. So that was the other message of it is that if we do get the supports that we need, whether they're at the individual community or societal level, then we all do have an opportunity to be mentally well. So that was also part of the vision behind this article was for people to move towards action. And the action piece is something that I was more hinting at the end of that article, which is like, we all have a role here and we can all create the kind of society that we want that's based on compassion, you know, where everybody has a chance to be well, despite what barriers they're facing. Uh, I I love that for, for many reasons. And one of the things that's really interesting to me is that it sounds like you really intentionally designed the story to achieve very specific goals. And that really comes to the idea of storytelling is about more than just the way that you present. One of the things I wanted to ask you about that is you do a lot of work in academia and storytelling is not necessarily the uh, most popular way to uh, get a message across in academia. And, And I'm just curious why you chose to go that route rather than publishing a paper or doing research or trying to get a journal article or something like that? I think that in the story, I actually do point to the evidence base. So I actually say, you know, near the end of it, we actually do have the research to back up this notion of how we can shift towards mental well-being. So I do mention it there. But I think that, you know, in my other publications that have been more academic and in some books that I've had the chance to publish, I, you know, that's where I really, you know, share more of the evidence base. And it's more of a, the language that, you know, that academic audience is the reader for that. And I don't think that's necessarily compelling to the general public. And so this is why I think the use of this story is really, really powerful. And even thinking about like how the the part around the complexity of mental health. So, you know, mental health has many factors that contribute to it. So in this story, I was able to share, you know, what are some of those individual level factors um, in terms of like our own coping, but also, you know, what are the community um, factors? So for example, I mentioned that my father was playing in a local soccer league because he really liked to play soccer. And, And so that kind of demonstrates, okay, so there could be support at the community level too. And then I talk about you know, other healing practices and other things that people might be thinking more on the spiritual realm. So I was able to put all of those elements so that people actually understand the complexity of what uh, determines mental health or what are the factors in society that can produce good outcomes. And also, you know, uh, thinking about like, how do we inspire people to, to take action, right? So it was a little bit of that as well. And I, I thought that it was, 
a little bit more interesting than, you know, just giving people the research. I, yes. I think that some of some of the research and I've I've had the chance to write for policymakers and it's a very different way of communicating with them, as you know. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I feel I always I always think that the power of a story, especially if it's a personal story, really, really resonates and stays with people. It's the thing that people remember. So, you know, you may throw out a bunch of facts, but what will stay with them is the personal story because at some level people relate to it. And I think that that's why it's, it's really powerful. We use it in the classroom too. You know, when we do the social innovation work, we use a lot of tools um, around building empathy and that a lot of it is collecting people's stories because only by understanding where people are at, can we actually create solutions that actually meet their needs so I think that that's, it's, it's a really powerful way to gather that data if we're talking about it from, from that perspective. And can you tell us, a, because there's a lot of people who've never done that kind of work and they don't know what it looks like. Could you tell us a little bit more about, about how you do that? Well, I think that what we're using now is a very interesting framework that's called um, equity-centered design. And it's uh, a new tool that's come out of the... Stanford Design School. And basically where it starts is understanding yourself. So there's a part of it where it's like uh, my own story. So where do I come from? What are my own biases? What are my own assumptions? You know, where do I stand in terms of my own social position of power and privilege and oppression? Because we we have uh, both, right? And so I think that that's the beginning of the conversation. And then from there, then you know, we get the students to start thinking about, okay, so given that you're understanding yourself and being self-reflective, and now how did you then go and work with community partners, starting from that premise of your own story, and then trying to incite others to share their stories. And when you're doing that is really building from this very, very strong foundation of trust. So, you know, if you know yourself more, you'll be able to also support others in sharing their story because you'll all, you'll be coming um, from a place of humility, quite frankly, that's, that's really where it needs to come from. So that you're going saying, I don't know everything. I'm curious about your life and what your experience is. And would you be willing to share that? Because I would be very honored to hear. So once the, the students do that, then then they're able to get a very clear picture of what people's needs are versus what they think the community needs are, which is often what we are basing ourselves if we're just looking at the data and the research. You know, that sounds incredibly powerful. And so, you know, the idea of saying, starting out by saying, I don't know everything, you know, that... that in itself for many people would be a huge leap. And so how, how has that actually translated into insights that inform the work that you do? Well, I think it's a learning every single day. And I'm, I'm really lucky because I actually get to work with instructors that we're all coming and, and learning. So we know we see ourselves um, as learners with the students and with the community. So every day, 
is going to be a learning experience for all of us. And I think that's really important because if you come from the position of being the expert and then people feel like, well, I have really nothing to share of value because they know everything already. So I think that that's, that's really important. And it happens, you know, in as we see the students progressing with their prototypes that they're developing, which is basically a model of a solution that they're designing throughout the semester. So, you know, I'll, I always like to give this example because I think it's such a powerful one. We had a team of students the first time that we uh, launched the Health Change Lab in the city of Surrey, and they were really interested in supporting First Nations urban youth uh, around some of the challenges. And so they did their research and the research was that food security was a very important issue to address. But when they went to actually engage with the community, they ended up having a conversation with youth from Frasca, from the Fraser Region Aboriginal Center, Friendship Center. And the, the young people at the Frasca Center said, you know, we, we do acknowledge that food security is a problem for our people, but we're actually more interested in building a cultural competency training program for educators in the school system because we see the rising levels of racism in the schools and teachers need to be prepared. They need to have tools. So the students ended up, you know, pivoting or, you know, completely shifting their model. And this was like halfway through the semester, but it wasn't like all the research that they had done to date went out the window. No, they used that to inform where they went next. But it was a really beautiful collaboration where the Indigenous youth ended up co-creating the design of this prototype, which then ended up actually getting implemented. Wow, that's fantastic. And and I can imagine one of the you know extra benefits of that is that they would then also be telling the story going forward of how this was actually a co-creation and, you know, your team did actually work in partnership with them, right? So the future story and the relationship that you, that you create out of working in that way is going to be beneficial to, to doing future work. Yeah. So what happened was that the students ended the semester and because it was already being co-designed with the, the youth from Frasca, the youth from Frasca ended up taking the prototype and then further implementing it. Yeah. And it, that's such a great example because um, it, it really shows how starting with some really simple storytelling um, can evolve into a really powerful and really tangible outcome. Because one of the problems with story work is you know, it's it's very often labeled as being fluffy or, you know, it's impossible to measure impact. And yes, you can't directly uh, connect the outcome to the story, but it's pretty easy to see how things connect going all the way through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen, I, I mean, I try to be really cognizant of like what's going to stay with people after we leave the conversation. And I think that stories are often, you know, what it's also because it's part of the way that our brain is wired, right? We we understand that narratives are very powerful in terms of that memory piece. And so I think that if you can use a story, then you probably have a better chance of people actually remembering your message. Yeah. And so I, what I really want to go to now is if you can tell me a bit about the work that you've been doing in Chile, which built off uh, the story you were telling us at the beginning about the personal story you shared during the speech and the, the subsequent article. You know, you said that people really started to find you. And so how has that work evolved? Well, right now, 
we are unfortunately experiencing another nightmare in Chile because of the military and police aggression that started in October because of the social uprising that many of your listeners have probably heard. It's been all over the news. So what connects this to my work in public health is particularly the issue around the human rights violations. So there have been increased reports from many uh, national and international agencies, including the UN, that the state violence continues to escalate. And there's been reports of deaths, of sexual violence, of detention, even detention of children, and a lot of eye injuries that people have, their eyes have been mutilated because of these round pellet ammunitions that the police force is using to disperse crowds. And so it's it's an awful situation. And so um, a group of us spontaneously got together in Vancouver. We are Chileans and Canadians that are trying to denounce these human rights violations. And so what we've done is um, also thinking about the the power of stories to share, you know, the personal stories that really impact people. So the reason why people are uprising is because Chile has the largest level of inequalities of all of the OECD countries. So they have a political and an economic system that has really brought forward this for the last last four decades, this state that we're in today where there is increased poverty, there are no uh, living wages, there's private pensions, two, two-tiered model for, for health care. And so some of the stories that we've been telling is like, you know, people in Chile have to set up bingos in order to get cancer treatments because they can't pay. The University of Chile actually reported uh, last week that there's a rise in suicide rates among older adults because people can't live off their pensions and they don't want to be burdened to their family. Um, Those kinds of stories really impact people because, you know, people can relate to thinking, oh my God, that could be my grandmother, you know, or, you know, that could be my cousin who was ill and had to get cancer treatment. And thankfully, you know, in Canada, we have a, a strong public system. It's not perfect, but we have access to education and access to healthcare for all. And so those are the, the stories that we're trying to put forward to help raise awareness, but also to make it really personal for people so that they can, you know, really be taking action. And what kind of response have you had to, to sharing these stories? Well, it's all happening over the last three weeks, so it um, it has been pretty intense. But I think that um, people have started to mobilize uh, around the stories of the ocular wounds. So last week, we found out that there's more than 200 people that have been deliberately shot in the eye. And now they have either temporary or permanent vision loss. So what happened was a group of people in Vancouver put together this video on YouTube that has people standing with a patch over their eyes to visually depict the story of what's happening in Chile. And it's been really, really powerful and it's being picked up by social media and by some media outlets here as well. Wow. I mean, that, that is really horrific stuff. And, and, it, it sounds like the stories you're telling are incredibly powerful. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that strikes me about the work you're doing is you're taking a really high level event, which, you know, in this, in the, 
in the everyday world of the average Vancouverite, you know, there's just so much news that goes on. It's just a headline to them, right? So it's an abstract concept. Oh, you know, oh dear, there's violence somewhere else in the world. You're taking that really abstract concept and you're making it really tangible and personal and specific and concrete to the point where, you know, they absolutely have to feel something. Um, there's no way that you could hear stories like that or see stories like that and not be able to react to them. And so, you know, I think that's amazing work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. It it really is a, a collective effort. I mean, and people have been really creative, uh, you know, at, at trying to figure out how do we best communicate this to the general public here. So it's been all of a sudden we've got this idea and um, it's been really amazing to watch how this group has unfolded. And, you know, the other thing that's important, I think, to note here is, you know, you're doing this with no budget, right? So so you're not running around making Hollywood movies. You're, you know, you're not an organization that has a line item for advocacy videos, right? You're, you're doing, you're oh, bootstrapping no, no. this. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's been, I mean, really, the, the interesting thing about this, I have to tell you, is that it's a very diverse group of people. So there are young people, there are seniors, professionals, scientists, students, etc. So I think what has, is happening, and it's also happening very organically, is that people are just saying, okay, so here's my skill set and how can I be of service? So we've got people that are doing these videos. I mean, I have no experience doing that. People that are setting up our website or social media. So it's been really interesting to to watch when people are so moved by, in this case, it's really global news that has really had a local impact. That's that's the best way I could describe it. Yeah, and rallying around a common story and 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 a future story that you know you're all working towards. And there's power in that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the challenges in doing this work is it's one thing to tell the story of what's going on. The really hard part is connecting it to the call to action. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about how you're how you're doing that. What's what's the action that you want people to take? And I guess it goes back to the point that you mentioned earlier. There's so much going on all the time. And so how do we get people in Canada to pay attention, but also to understand what Canada's role is? Now, we have been collecting uh, a lot of journalist reports uh, that are actually tapping into Canada's investments, both in terms of military aid and investments in Chile, uh, as well as how everyday citizens have investments in Chile that we don't even know about. One of the things we've discovered is that the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan actually is the largest shareholder of one of the corporations in Chile that, I mean, Chile Chile has everything privatized now, like the healthcare system, the pensions, even the water. So we found out that Ontario's teachers are the largest shareholders in the water and sanitation corporation in Chile. So I think that it's really important that Canadians understand this because it's not in the news. And so what we've done is two things. One of them is a call for everyday citizens to boycott Chilean wine. And the reason why we've chosen Chilean wine is because it's something that anybody can do. You know, everybody can say, oh, this today I'm going to actually buy local BC wine versus Chilean wine. And we're letting people know that that's because the owners of the large wine industry in Chile are also the corporate and the political elite that are at the root of this crisis. 
And the second thing we're doing is we're contacting our MPs um, all over Canada because this is not just something that's happening with the community in Vancouver, but actually in all the major cities. So in Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg, Calgary, etc. And we're writing letters to our MPs, but also we are filing a citizen's petition to be read at the House of Commons when it opens, when Parliament opens in November. And we are asking the government of Canada to denounce the human rights violations in Chile that are happening currently and also to stop uh, diplomatic and trade relations with Chile until the military is no longer abusing its powers. The way that you're able to bring this story home to people by finding out what their personal connection is, is really, is really powerful and it's really critical to get them to care about it. So that's amazing work. And, and the thing that strikes me just as you were wrapping up there was thinking about how your involvement in this all came from what you thought was sharing a simple personal story several years ago and how far, you know, the journey that you've been on. I'm just wondering if, you know, when you think back to the time when you originally shared your story, when you were giving that speech and you think about the journey that, that, that you know, this has led you on, what, what are your feelings about that? <laughs> the other day I had to give an interview for the CBC and they asked me, like, why do you care so much about this issue? And, you know, there's a part of me, of course, is this is a personal story, right? This is something about my history and my people, et cetera. And even though I've lived many, many years in Canada, I do have a history. I was born in Chile. I was um, raised in Canada and in Chile. And I actually went back for many years. So I do have that experience. But also, I think from a professional perspective, you know, as an educator, I truly believe that we need to have a dialogue and, you know, empathy and compassion in order to build a truly, truly democratic state. So from that perspective, you know, um, all of my work that aims to inform that dialogue and co-creation, really, is like how the best way to build solutions I really do feel is through participatory approaches where we can actually co-create them together. So I think that's something that I really care strongly about. But then also from a public health perspective, if we think about these human rights violations as a pressing public health issue, it's causing physical harm to people, but also mental health consequences that are going to be intergenerational because this is trauma. People are reliving trauma and I'll tell you a story since <laughs> we're on the topic of stories. So the other day I ran into one of the people that's supporting the group here in Vancouver. And she told me that her father hasn't been able to leave the house since this all started because he basically was so traumatized. He was uh, one of the people that came during the 70s as a political exile and, you know, I don't know what the personal circumstances are, but the fact that there has been trauma in the community and the diaspora here in Canada, that is solid. Like we know that there has been trauma for people that were left behind and also people that had to leave the country. And so the fact that he's reliving this now and he can't even leave his house, you know, is really a demonstration of, again, back to the, the mental health consequences. Now, this is somebody who is um, vicariously living through this experience today. But imagine the people that are living 
through this, that are in Chile, that are protesting, that are on the streets, that are seeing this level of state violence. So imagine what the mental health impacts for them are going to be. You know, this is this is not something that's going to end just when the military start, stops repressing, which we all hope is very soon. This is going to have major, major impacts. And then, you know, the other element of this is that this is from the research that we have, you know, inequalities are at the root of increased crime, increased violence, increased disease, and increased trauma. So this is all part of why I care so deeply about this, because I I feel that this is, you know, a public health emergency that's going on in the world right now with all of these human rights violations that are, you know, at, at the root of it is like, I think we need to have a better system a better system where people are protected and not repressed or abused by the state. So again, I always have felt that public health is a very, it's a very political issue because where government invests their money makes a huge difference for people's health. But also when the governments in these cases overstep their power, it also leads to a crisis where a lot of people end up in care in the health system. People arriving in emergency rooms with shot wounds, you know, having to do uh, rape kits for young people that um, have experienced sexual violence, et cetera. So it's actually having a direct impact on health professionals and particularly people that are working in that public system that has been so under-resourced for, you know, decades and decades in Chile. And so, you know, thinking forward to the work that's going to have to be done, as you say, you know, over generations and and thinking about the power of story and the number of people around the world that are trying to do this work, you know, what what advice would you have to your your colleagues who are trying to change the story going forward? Okay, so I think that it's important to think about the the idea of how stories can convey a really powerful message, whether it's advocacy or whether it's research, you know, or whether it's about innovation. I think that that's important to note, but also that sharing your own personal story, like in this case, you know, it takes something (laughs) to, you know, go out in the world and, and share our own vulnerabilities. But I think that what I have received um, in terms of feedback of this has been, nothing but compassion and support. So even though it was a little bit scary when I did it at first, I think that people, again, really related to that personal aspect of my story. And they also uh, have told me that they really appreciate how passionate I am about this. And I think that if I didn't have that personal connection, I wouldn't be as passionate about it. So I think that that's also really important. And, And then in terms of using... Uh, stories to convey, you know, evidence and research. I mean, there are people who do that very well, and then some people forget to do that, you know. And so I think that that's always uh, it's thinking about like who is your audience and what would be the things that would help them remember your message, and how can you use a story to do that? I think there are some important questions to ask yourself. 
Those are fantastic questions. And I think we're, we're going to wrap it up there just because this, is, this has been a great conversation. And, and I hope that we can get a chance to check in sometime in the future and see uh, how things are going and find out, uh, find out more about the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for sharing your stories, sharing your insights and your expertise. Thank you, Denise. I really hope that it uh, supports people in you know thinking about opening up and sharing about themselves because I think that that is uh, very powerful. But even if you don't, <laughs> the the use of stories to convey your research or convey you know the advocacy pieces that you are working on, I think it's 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 a really interesting moment in time right now. And I think that it does help people move towards action. And that's always been my bias. Like, I think that it's great that we have a lot of evidence and research, but, you know, unless we move into action, it just can stay in a publication somewhere. And, you know, the the general public doesn't have access to it. But I think that reaching people in their homes, you know, in their workplaces, I think it's, it's very important to think about how to, how can we use stories that both convey our passion, but also our vision for a better society. And that's a great place to leave it, a vision for a better society. And so I'm looking forward to watching your work and how you continue to pursue that for the benefit of everybody. So thank you again, Paolo. Thank you, Denise. Much appreciated. You've been listening to Forward, a podcast about how leaders use stories to shape the future. If you'd like to know more about how story design can help you develop and sell your big idea, get in touch at denisewithers.com.